I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is Mega Bluster. I'm Stefan, and this is part 14 of our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Mega Man 6, released in Japan as Rokuman Shikasu Shijo Sadai no Tatakai, which means Rockman 6. The greatest battle of all time! Two exclamation points. On November 5th, 1993, for the Nintendo Family Computer, and in the United States on March 15th, 1994, for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Six years had passed since the Japanese release of Rockman for the Famicom. In that time, the Soviet Union fell, Superman died, and 12 games bearing the Mega Man brand had made their way into the world across the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Game Boy, and the Microsoft Disk Operating System. Inside the Capcom offices, several different waves of development had conspired to transform the once plucky upstart into a globally renowned superpower of the gaming industry. As Mega Man established itself as a mascot franchise, Capcom churned out hit after hit, including, but not limited to, a successful partnership with Disney that resulted in DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and several Mickey Mouse games. Final Fight, which reinvented the arcade brawler and along with Konami's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Sega's Streets of Rage, set a new standard for cooperative multiplayer action. And then of course there was Street Fighter 2, one of those rare games that's impact on the industry and the world's perception of video games could be described as genuinely revolutionary. With Street Fighter 2 in particular, Capcom had remade its public image as both an arcade powerhouse and a driver of home console sales. A 16-bit console was not commercially viable without a version of Street Fighter 2. By 1994, the company would release Street Fighter the Movie, which no one at the time knew would turn out to be Street Fighter the Movie. The company was on the upswing, its fortunes growing rapidly, its roster of viable IP expanding, so what was it still doing making Mega Man games for the now decade-old Nintendo family computer? Capcom had taken its time bringing Mega Man to the fourth generation of video game consoles. I hypothesized in another episode that it was simply because of a conflict of priorities. There were other things going on at the company, and Mega Man games could be churned out cheaply and quickly if they didn't get too ambitious with them. But after the release of Mega Man 5, Capcom couldn't put off the inevitable any longer. 8-bit home consoles were dying, and it was time to move on. Capcom announced Mega Man X, the first Super Famicom installment in the series, in 1993. But at the same time, it announced a swan song of sorts for its original franchise. 
Mega Man 6 would be the final entry in the original NES series. Not because the story needed to be wrapped up, not because there was an artistic imperative to continue in its existing style, not because fans were demanding it, but simply because at this point Mega Man was a factory product. It was the equivalent of a B-movie from the 1940s or 50s. Inexpensive, easy to make, more or less guaranteed to make a profit if you put it in the right place or attached the right star. It was easy money. And Capcom loved easy money. So how would Capcom justify Mega Man 6, a platformer released for the 8-bit Famicom only one year before Sony launched the 32-bit PlayStation in Japan? Well, to some degree, it didn't. Capcom knew the writing was on the wall when it came to the series' viability on outdated hardware. And while it went through the motions of releasing the game in Japan, it didn't want it to come west at all. It was Nintendo, not Capcom, who published Mega Man 6 in North America as part of a final wave of titles to shore up sales of the $50 top-loading variant of the NES. One last push before the venerable old machine was decommissioned for good. We've discussed in previous episodes the difference in the Japanese and North American markets at this time, and while the 16-bit console wars were in full swing in the US, the NES's later launch in the region meant that its hardware was seen as still marginally viable as a bargain product, rather than as completely obsolete. Having Mega Man 6 as an exclusive release could be just enough of a needle mover to justify the publication, and by NES standards, the game was a technical showcase. Capcom's team had Mega Man down by this point. Level design was more or less templatized, the rock-paper-scissors boss sequence practically programmed itself, and the Robot Master concept design had been more or less completely outsourced to fans. That's how we ended up with luminaries like Blizzard Man, Centaur Man, Flame Man, Night Man, that's Night with K, not Fighter of the Day Man, uh, Plant Man, Tomahawk Man, Wind Man, and Yamato Man. Add in one superficial narrative twist, who would have guessed that villainous Mr. X, who looks exactly like Dr. Wily with a beard and sunglasses, would turn out to be Dr. Wily all along and one new marginally interesting mechanic. And baby, you've got a stew going. That marginally interesting mechanic was prominently featured on the North American box art, which it must be said had finally gotten pretty good, even if it still had a weird glossiness to it. Rather than using his trusty robot steed Rush as an item, Mega Man assimilated him via the Rush adapter into two forms of body armor. The jet armor let Mega Man hover or fly upward briefly, while the power armor fired a short-range punch to destroy objects. Move and shoot. Remember, we've broken Mega Man games down into move and shoot mechanics. And I have also stated in the past that all meaningful innovation in the series happens in the move mechanic, not the shoot mechanic. 
on examination, are either of these armors meaningful? Truthfully, no. There are a few challenges here or there that are trivialized by the use of the jet armor, but no more than they would have been by using the classic rush jet. Uh, at worst, it becomes a cheat, a sort of easy mode that some players might find welcoming, but which violates the principles by which the challenges in the games were built. Now, I'm not contending that games shouldn't have an easy mode or that people who play games on easy mode aren't really playing games. I'm just saying that an easy mode in and of itself does not constitute a meaningful innovation in the context of the Mega Man series, particularly given that the series was built on moment-to-moment -moment tactical challenges that this easy mode trivializes. What game is left in the game at this point? The power armor also fails to make much of an impact on moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, except in certain discrete sections that feel like they were built entirely to justify having the armor in the game. In practice, the rush adapters simply mean a significant increase in the number of times you will press the start button and enter the menu. Despite the innovation, you don't play the game that differently. You do, however, look different and that's interesting. It's interesting because despite changing his color when adapting different robot powers in previous games, the core of Mega Man's visual design has never really changed to this point. He has always been the same sprite. Even on the Game Boy, he was the same sprite. And now, suddenly, Mega Man looked different. So what gives? My hypothesis? I think KG Inofune was getting bored. I haven't talked that much about KG Inofune during this series. I've mentioned him in almost every episode, and his importance is going to continue to grow as we move on. He, more than anyone, has carried the torch for Mega Man over the course of his career. But he is a controversial figure today for reasons that we will explore in depth over the course of several episodes. And I expect that we'll praise and damn him in equal measure as we go along. For the time being though, it is worth stating that if we consider Mega Man first and foremost as an intellectual property in need of a champion, Keiji Inafune is the most important individual person in the franchise's history for better or worse. Inafune joined Capcom as a 22-year-old artist in 1987. The first two games he worked on were Takashi Nishiyama's Street Fighter and Akira Kitamura's Mega Man. With the exception of Steven Rosner's Mega Man duology for DOS, Inafune has contributed in some way to every Mega Man game we've covered so far as either an artist or a planner. It would be unfair to put the blame for the series' inclination towards repetition on Inafune, at least at this early stage, and I won't. I will, in fact, express tremendous sympathy for him. It has become somewhat difficult to find new things to say about these early Mega Man games after playing so many of them in rapid succession. I can only imagine how difficult it was to find new things to put in them as their maker. These are repetitive games, and to be working on them consistently with minimal refinement year after year would not be many people's idea of professional fulfillment. 
And what breaks did he have in there? What other projects kept him busy? Well, 1989's DuckTales was an enormous critical and commercial hit, but his only other credited works between then and Mega Man 6 were Buster Brothers for the PC Engine, Gold Medal Challenge 92 for the NES, and Breath of Fire, which we'll have more to say about in a future episode. Breath of Fire he didn't even get to see through to completion. Inafune was pulled off of Breath of Fire, his contributions apparently not quite fitting the spirit of what Capcom was going for. In these circumstances, who wouldn't be frustrated? Who wouldn't be getting bored? His mentor, Akira Kitamura, was long gone, and with yet another Mega Man game on his resume, there's a possibility that Inafune might have felt stagnation setting in. And could anyone blame him for it? Could anyone be surprised if he had started to feel the need to branch out and find something new? From Mega Man 6's release in 1993, through to the end of the millennium, Inafune would be credited on 16 original games. 15 of them would be Mega Man games. But whereas the series had settled into a comfortable groove, or maybe a rut, since the release of Mega Man 3, that's the first Mega Man 3, the one with the Arabic email, these 15 games would cover a surprising amount of ground and represent a focused attempt to push the franchise into new directions. How much of that can reasonably be credited to Inafune is the subject of some debate. But the man was there, and his influence over and ownership of the franchise would only increase over the course of those years. They represent some of the series' greatest triumphs, as well as some of its biggest missed opportunities. And the first indication that we were on the cusp of something new, some kind of change, some kind of breakthrough, was this little red armored Mega Man. The product of a bored ambitious mind wandering. Thanks for listening to part 14 of Mega Bluster, our very, very long look at the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original postings in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't enjoy this episode, send it to people you don't like. It's a great hate gift. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilelessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. This episode completes the list of the games we will be looking at as part of our first season of Mega Bluster. I'll be back next time to summarize what we've learned and to talk about where we go from here. Until then, how long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure.